cross my heart and hope to die. It's a statement we discourage our kids from using these days. And uh, a couple of my kids have, were so overwhelmed by it that there's a popular song uh, by Maroon 5 that used this statement, and they thought it was too creepy, so they didn't even listen to it when they uh, first came to the United States. Um, but, uh, but it was a common statement to hear on the playground when I was a kid, and it was very common to hear in my house with my siblings. And obviously, when we said it, we didn't really mean that we hope to die. What we meant was, you can trust what I'm saying so much that if I'm lying to you or deceiving you in any way, God could strike me down. Uh, and most of the time, we felt that the weight of that statement so that we really were telling the truth. Uh, every once in a while, you'd find somebody who was arrogant enough to play with that <laughs> just to manipulate you into being tricked. Um, I'm sure I never did that, though. Uh, just my brother and sister. Uh, cross my heart and hope to die. I, you, can, you can trust what I'm saying. I promise. I promise what I'm saying is true. As we continue our exploration of Hebrews, we turn today to chapter 9, verse 15. You can find it in the Pew Bibles in page 1038. If you're not using a Pew Bible, I can't guess what page it's on, but um, 1038. Uh, it's a lengthy passage today, uh, and so I'll invite you to open up those Bibles so you can read along. But uh, we hear in this first verse, chapter 9, verse 15, this description of what God wants to give us and what he wants, to under, what he wants us to understand through this passage. We hear that God has set aside for us that in Jesus we have a promised eternal inheritance. And so God is saying, I promise you this is true. This is real. This is yours. Uh, and he's not saying across my heart, I hope to die. And he's not manipulating us in any way. He's just saying, straight up, this is true. This is what I want for you. This is what I have for you. So I invite you to read along as I read this passage. Uh, so there wasn't an easy way to break it down. So I just, I want us all to hear the words, but then I'll try to s clarify and simplify some things for us from it. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law of all the people, he took the blood of calves together with the water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that ev nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the earthly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands 
There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have been guilty, felt guilty for all their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So it's... Uh, all the words make sense, but it can be kind of an overwhelming argument. It's well thought out, as we've experienced throughout Hebrews. And many of the ideas in this passage are echoes of things that we heard from chapter 7, 8, and 9 already. But it's important, and we want to take some time to understand what it means that God has given us a promised eternal inheritance. Because this whole passage helps kind of feed, help explain um, that wondrous truth. And so we want to kind of look at each of those words and explain through this passage and some other passages as well what God has in store for us. So first, Jesus' blood guarantees us the forgiveness and salvation God promised from the very beginning, or nearly the very beginning, God has promised 
that he will help us. He recognizes, so in Genesis 3, it's recorded for us when humanity rebelled against God and sinned for the very first time and everything broke. And we were ushered out of Eden. Eden was this beautiful, wonderful place where we got to have this beautiful, intimate relationship with God and where everything fell into place properly according to his rule. But since we rebelled against him, we've been east of Eden, outside of Eden, struggling with sin and evil in the world and sin and evil in our own lives. But in that very first conversation, as God met Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent as well, and talked to them about the consequences of their rebellion, in Genesis 3.15 already, God promises that he will send a savior, a rescuer, someone who will come as a descendant of Adam and Eve, who will be hurt by the serpent, but who will stomp and crush the serpent's head and bring an end to all the problems. From the very beginning, God has promised that he has a solution to our rebellion, that he can solve our problem in a way that we never can. And so God continues to repeat and remind us of that promise throughout all the prophets. It's sung about in the Psalms. Jesus spoke that promise again and again and again in his teaching while he was here. And even throughout the New Testament letters, as Paul and Peter and others write to help us understand what Jesus has done for us, is to help us understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to us. That everything we were waiting for has come true for us in Jesus. God has promised every spiritual blessing to us through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, almost the end of our passage today, there's an echo of the promise. We heard this passage uh, quoted in an earlier chapter of Hebrews. It comes from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And God says that he wants to set his law in our hearts. That it wouldn't just be a rule that we try to aspire to, but that it would be that his ways, his character would be rooted in us and that our sins would be forgiven. Our sins and lawless acts, he will remember them no more because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. He promises to send a rescuer. He promises to send help. He promises in Jesus to set us free from the burden of our sin. If we jump back a little bit in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, earlier in our passage today, there's this really powerful picture for me. Um, the writer of the Hebrews is describing that first covenant and how as Moses proclaimed the whole law given by God to the people, then he used blood, sacrificed animals to kind of affirm it. And this is real. And he, in chapter 9, verse 20, Moses said, this is the, is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. 
And as we think of this promise that God has made to rescue us, the echo of that statement made by Jesus that we use in communion is powerful. Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. And as Jesus establishes the new covenant in him by his sacrifice, he says, this, my blood, is the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of the covenant that makes it all true. But in the first covenant, it was this promise that we would do our best. And in the new covenant, Jesus declares he's done it for us. God has made a promise to us and he keeps his promises. What we celebrated last week as we celebrated Easter helps us have great confidence in trusting God and taking him at his word. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus can and will do everything he said he would do. He said he would die for our sins. He said he would be raised on the third day, and it happened. As Jesus was raised to life again, he verified, he demonstrated his power and authority over all things, over every battle we face, over sin, Satan, and evil. And he said, none of the problems that you face because of your rebellion are problems for me. I've conquered them all. My blood really does cover you. And as you trust me, you are free because I've conquered it all. And so God makes this promise and he keeps his promises. We can trust him. Second, Jesus sacrificed himself, not animals, but himself, once with eternal impact. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 in our text today, the writer says, But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's the writer of the Hebrews uses this as a contrast to what we see in the the priesthood of the law. And in verse 11, the writer says, The priests stood all the time. They were always busy. There was always more to do. They offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But it never actually paid for sin, and it was never finished. But when Jesus offered himself one time, it was finished. And he sat down and there was no more priestly work to do. And so he sacrificed himself once, and it has eternal impact. Our concluding verse from our text today, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, uh, has just been a really powerful truth for me to rest in this week as I've been thinking about this. The writer of the Hebrews says, And where these have been forgiven, where these sins and lawless deeds have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, we know, we can accept that as true. Like, we've heard many times, Jesus' sacrifice was one and done. It was all that we need. It was 
better than all the other sacrifices. And so we don't continue the sacrificial system from the Old Testament, from the first covenant. But this powerful truth has really practical implications for us. You see, as I was growing up, I went to church and I, I heard this truth about how God loves us and can forgive Still, in my still human struggle, in my perfectionism and in my just kind of drive toward responsibility, it was really easy for me to twist that into, I need to prove that it was worth it. Like, it cost God a lot to rescue me. And so, I trust that there are people in this room that struggle in similar ways. That you struggle to wonder, that, that you wonder sometimes, like, is that real? Did, did God really promise that to me, or did he just promise it to lots of people? Does he really love me enough? Is Jesus' sacrifice really enough to cover the things that I feel bad about? But more than that, as we follow after God, it's really easy to twist his gift and his invitation to be like him and to be his children into this job where we act like the priests of the first covenant, where we never sit down and we're just busy and we're trying so hard to prove that we can do it and that we're good enough and that it was okay that Jesus paid for our sin. But what we're reminded about in this text is that where we have been forgiven, there is no sacrifice, no new sacrifice needed for sin. Jesus really did offer the sacrifice that we needed, and he is enough. All the good things that we want to do, all the time that we want to spend reading scripture and praying and sharing our faith and and all of those things, those are good and right things to do because we want to spend time with God and we want to learn what it means to be his children. But we don't do that to win favor with God because Jesus already did that for us. And he is enough. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, we read that the law is only a shadow of what's actually true and not the reality. The law is good and perfect and important. It can be used by society as a curb to kind of keep us in the right direction and help us understand how to be kind to each other and what God expects of us and how to relate to him. It can be used as a mirror in our own lives so that we're convicted of our sin and we recognize our need for a Savior and we turn to Jesus. It can, be, it can function like a coach. As we turn to Jesus and trust in him, reading his word and understanding the law, hearing the law helps us recognize our sin and confess it, like we said already, but it also helps us know what to say yes to and what to say no to. As we want to be like God and let him work in our lives, the law helps shape us and guide us as we follow after God. 
But the law is just a shadow of what's real. And what's real is that God has promised that he would send a savior, and Jesus is that savior. And Jesus, one sacrifice, paid for all our sin. And when we trust in him, there is no new sacrifice that, that is needed, required, expected. We don't have to do more to make ourselves pleasing to God. We become children of God, treasured by him through faith in Jesus. Third, trusting Jesus unlocks our glorious inheritance. In chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So we see again the echo of that promise that God has made. Jesus, his sacrifice is enough and it's all complete and it's finished. But in our current experience, as we continue to live here in this battle against sin in a broken world where sin infects everything, we still struggle. We're saved as we trust in Jesus but we still feel this battle. But Jesus is coming again, this time not to bear sin because he did that once for all and it doesn't have to be done again. But next, when he returns, it's so that we can experience the fullness of life with him. That we can experience the fullness of what salvation means. That we can be free in the glory of God and see him face to face and have no fear that our battle with sin will be completely put away and evil will be destroyed. You see, inheritance is a powerful concept for us to understand because inheritance is something that we, we don't earn. It's a gift given to us because of our relationship with the person who died. Now, in some families, there might be crazy dynamics where you kind of have to do the right things in order to make sure you're written into the will. But that's not how God works, and that's not the concept described here. We have a promised eternal inheritance. Scripture reminds us that we were children of wrath, that in our nature, we're rebels against God. We try to do this on our own and we try to say, God, I don't need you. And despite that, God has promised that he will send a rescuer so that as we trust in Jesus, he will wipe away all our sins, and he will change our identity. We will no longer be children of wrath, but instead we will be children of God. Our identity is reformed, reshaped. We are regenerated. We have a new life. And for all the children of God, God has set aside this 
inheritance. And it works a little bit differently on earth. Inheritance is given once somebody dies. Our spiritual inheritance we receive when we die, and we experience the wonder of being in the full presence of the living God. When we trust in Jesus, it unlocks for us, it blesses us with this glorious inheritance. We don't earn it, Jesus gives it to us. There's nothing we can do to make it better. God has already declared over us these realities. We just haven't fully experienced them yet. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm already belongs to us for those of us who trust Jesus. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 describe it this way. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. It's a strange reality. It says that even though we live in this broken place, in broken lives, in broken bodies, even though we still struggle with sin, Jesus' sacrifice was so powerful, so complete, that as we trust in him, all that sin is removed from who we are in the presence and perspective of God. And we are children of God with our citizenship anchored in a place we, if we've ever been there, we don't remember it at all. Our citizenship, our passport, comes from heaven for all of us who trust in Jesus. It's the place we be belong. It's our, it's our home. It's where our identity comes from. We're shaped by the culture of heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there who will help us experience, not because... He's already come, and he's won it for us, but we await his return so that all the fullness and the wonder of these blessings that are already given to all of God's children, that we will experience them and recognize that they're ours. Earlier in the service, our call to worship was from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter describes our inheritance this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As we trust in Jesus, we receive a promised eternal inheritance. It's promised by God and we can trust it's going to happen. It's eternal. Jesus has already done everything needed in order to make it ours. 
as we trust him and receive it as God's gift to us, he transforms us into his own children. And as his children, we are guaranteed this inheritance. The privilege of being his child in his presence, in peace forever. It's already true of us, but we eagerly await Jesus' return when it will be fully experienced by us. It's already true. Jesus has already done everything needed to accomplish it and to give it to us. And as we trust in Jesus, it's ours. Corey Tenboom um, had this little statement, and I, I, when we are on the beach, we only see a small part of the ocean. However, we know that there is much more beyond the horizon. We only see a small part of God's great love, a few jewels of his great riches, but we know there's much more beyond the horizon, this promised eternal inheritance. The best is yet to come when we see Jesus face to face. This promised eternal inheritance, it's not it's not scarce. It's not just first come, first serve. Like, we've got to race to get there. Well, sorry. Uh, sometime. Anyway, we don't have to race to get there, but it's urgent. We don't know when the time is done. Okay? But while today is today, while we're alive and breathing, we have opportunity to recognize that God wants to give this to us. We can receive it by receiving Jesus. Jesus makes this promise to us with lasting, eternal impact and significance. It's an inheritance that just belongs to his kids. Jesus didn't say, cross my heart and hope to die. He actually died on a cross and said, here's my heart. Come follow me. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We pray that you would help these truths echo in our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that you would put our, our feet on solid ground, that you would be our rock you would anchor us in this truth, this freedom. It's greater than we could imagine that you've promised to send a Savior. You've promised us life with you through Jesus. Jesus, you have come and lived righteously and you've done through your death and resurrection everything we need. So we pray that you would help us live in the confidence of being your children. 
that we still long to see you face to face and we still struggle day to day and moment by moment. We pray that you would anchor us in the freedom of knowing that we, as we trust in you by faith, have this promised eternal inheritance. We are who you say we are and you're enough for us. Pray this all in Jesus' name.